Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, whether they're eBooks or earrings. Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. All right, welcome everyone. Uh, I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host for Thinking Outside the Bud. Uh, we are here with Dr. Jordan Tischler. Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. So, uh, a couple of things about Dr. Tischler, just some backgrounds. So, um, cannabis specialist. So, a lot of time in cannabis, originally in internal medicine, emergency room physician, really kind of looking at application of, of cannabis in the medical space. So that's what we're going to talk to today. Dr. Tischler, graduate of both Harvard College and Harvard Medical School, uh, trained at Bingham and Women's Brigham. Hospital. So I want to Brigham say- Bingham and Women's <laughs> Hospital. It's quite a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, I know. And has spent a lot of time working with the underserved and actually a lot of our veterans as well. So I'm curious to hear about that. And has experience working with basically patients that have seen side effects, downsides of alcohol and drugs uh, and looking at cannabis as an alternative to that. Uh, understanding how cannabis works from a medical point of view, uh, looking at safety, looking at treatment, looking at dosing. So we're going to talk about that today. And has also been on the entrepreneurial uh, corporate side, looking at how to bring in medical cannabis from a business point of view and uh, taking cannabis products to market. Dr. Tischler is also president of the Association of Cannabis Specialists and is the treasurer and a board member uh, of uh, the board of director member for Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. DFCR. So again, thank you for being on the program. I'm really excited about this because I think this whole medical, recreational sort of uh, bifurcation of the industry is a fascinating one uh, and really kind of understanding it and and what's driving each side. Why don't we start there? Why don't you give us kind of a a frame from your point of view of what what these two sort of terms mean right now, how they kind of impact how the industry is set up, kind of help set up the discussion a little bit? Sure. I think, you know, it's a very interesting dichotomy, but 
in some ways, it's rooted in some interesting history. So, you know, without getting into too much of the detail about why cannabis was made illegal for all sorts of non-medical reasons, what sort of came about was through the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and early 90s, the observation that patients could be helped by cannabis. And so there was this idea that evolved of medical cannabis. And as you know, in 1996, California became the first state to go against the federal government and legalize cannabis in a medical context. But they didn't really get into any of the sort of medical details. They just sort of said, look, if we're going to go against the feds, we're going to just kind of make it a very passive thing where the doctor's role will simply be to say yes or no, this is okay for you or good for you. I mean, technically what you're supposed to be saying is saying that the benefits likely outweigh the risks. And that's sort of the end of the doctor's involvement. And then out the patient would go into the wide world and try to sort of figure out how to do all of this. And that is, in my opinion, and I think the opinion of most other practitioners, not a particularly medical approach to anything. What I often say is, look, if you went to your doctor and said, hey, doc, I'm worried that I have high blood pressure or some other illness, and the doc said, yep, you've got high blood pressure, go get some medicine, you'd stop and you'd think that they had three heads, right? You'd be like, well, what medicine and where should I go to get it and how much do I take and what is it going to do for me and what are the side effects and all of those sorts of questions that we would expect any competent clinician to provide answers for. So we need to kind of get back to that level of involvement for physicians to truly medicalize this. And there are a number of forces out there that are sort of arrayed against that idea because as an sort of initially, I think, unintended consequence of this medical stuff, we started to see people who might be more appropriately termed recreational users finding sort of minor maladies by which they could then qualify under the, rec under the medical law to, to get their cannabis. And so it yeah. developed over time from being a treatment for some very, very seriously ill folks into this sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing. I'll tell you a little story of several years ago, I was walking the boardwalk at Venice Beach in California with my wife and young daughter and a very attractive woman rollerbladed up to me wearing nothing other than the tiniest uh, string bikini covered with pot leaves. And she said, do you want a medical card? I can get you one in five minutes. Yeah. And I'm just dumbfounded, right? Because I'm doing this, but seriously. And I'm standing there with my, what, 10-year-old yeah. daughter yeah. and thinking, really? This is a medical? So, you know, we need to get away from that sort of thing. And now that we've moved into an era where medical and recreational sort of coexist, at least in many states, there is a lot of money at play that's really trying to shift the focus to recreational and shift the idea that medical is medical into its being sort of a quasi-recreational thing with this idea that you'll just, if you have a backache or whatever, go down to your local pot shop and somebody behind the counter will tell you mm -hmm. what to do. But of course, they're really talking out of school, right? I mean, the guys behind the counter know about as much about medicine as your average yeah. Starbucks barista. So, you know, if it turns out that your back pain is because you have yeah. undiagnosed, you know, prostate cancer, you're going to be in a world of trouble if you have just gotten your advice from the bud tender. So I think we'd like to avoid that situation. But again, there's a lot of money yeah. at stake here because the more they can push people into that arena, 
the more money they can sell by selling more and more cannabis. And frankly, unfortunately, the, the state's governments have mm-hmm. sort of acquiesced to both medical and then recreational sort of around this buzz about look at how much tax revenue that we can generate. And that's really, in some ways, really driven the train yeah. for the for the legislators. And the problem is then they want to make everybody a recreational patient because we don't tax people's medicine. But then that also means we're forcing or trying yeah. to encourage people into a market that isn't suited to their needs. Yeah, no, no. And I think that's good because I think you're, you're pointing out not just the differences, you know, in, between the markets, but how they impact each other. And I think that's really the point here is that it's it's how how you define one market will really end up changing the forces. And I think the taxation is a really interesting point. It really frames it differently for legislature, for governments, for you know tax revenues. So I guess in, in terms of from uh, the medical side, when you say or when we talk about trying to bring in better kind of regulation, what does that look like? Like what kind of structure, what kind of standards, what kind of processes do you feel are really going to help uh, help that side of the cannabis market? It's a great question. You know, one of the great ironies in all of this sort of the legal or regulatory framing is that we say, OK, we're not going to tax people's medication. And that's correct. We shouldn't be. But the irony to me is that it's probably fairly meaningless in the long run because at least my patients use very little cannabis, right? In fact, there's this concept that a patient needs more or higher potency cannabis, which in fact couldn't be further from the truth. My patients tend to use this stuff very cautiously and carefully and in very sparing amounts and they get great benefit. It's the recreational users who want to use more and different and new and high doses. So they would be the ones who would save a significant amount of money if they were in the medical system, but then of course they shouldn't be in the medical system. So when we start to talk about what kinds of regulations would really make an impact, I think we need to really focus on safety, but that's across both markets, right? What we also really need to focus on, and I actually think this is across both markets as well, is this idea that the bud tenders really don't know medicine. Um, So if you are going into a recreational shop and you want to have a discussion with the bud tender about you know, the type of high that you're going to get or how you're going to get stoned over the weekend or you want a particular flavor of edible or all those sorts of things that are sort of about what recreational is about, which is, you know, having fun. First of all, I don't have any problem with that. And I think that's a legitimate conversation with a bud tender. They know something about selling cannabis and what products might be enjoyable to you. But again, if you're going in there saying I have anxiety or I have depression or I have a backache or or any of those sorts of things, I think we have to get to a point where the bud tenders know enough to know that they shouldn't be addressing those questions. And if you go into a, a CVS or a, well, where you are, a Dwayne Reed, yeah. and say to the cashier, what should I buy for my back pain? he or she is going to simply say, I can't answer that question. You need to talk to the pharmacist because there are strict regulations around who can say what in a pharmacy. And the pharmacist may is probably going to say to that question, you need to talk to your doctor or you could try some Advil for a few days. But if not, then you should talk to your doctor because this system has evolved over the last hundred years in response to various problems and situations so that we now have a tightly regulated and well-functioning system. And one of the odd things about the politics of all of this is that because 
the federal government resists the idea that cannabis is medicine. We've had to invent these sort of state-by-state -state systems that are reinventing the wheel and, frankly, aren't very far along with it, so they're not very good at it. The ideal, in my mind, would be to go back through this system that has been evolved carefully over the last hundred years and say, look, you know, we don't need to reinvent this. We just need to change the politics of the situation. Yeah. And, and thus the kind of push for regulation, basically coming back to regulating and, and putting in place these practices and standards at a, um, at a federal level so that we can actually have consistency. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and this is a major focus for me at this point. And so, um, yeah, I guess the, the, the model, and, and I'm, I'm not sure it's a perfect analogy, but the one I use is kind of, um, you know, fitness and working out and physiotherapy. I mean, there's the, you know, if you want to, if you just want to go to the gym and work out, you know, you can kind of hire any trainer, you know, that you, that is fun and that you want to do things. But, you know, if you've got a serious injury and you're looking at rehabilitation, you need to go through a, a, a very specific diagnosis, you know, putting together a regime, working with someone who's actually a physiotherapist and knows, you know, a lot more intricately what's going on with the body and how to recondition those parts uh, in the right way and the right process. I think that's not a bad analogy. The other point is that, you know, PT rehab people have a certain degree of training so that they really know what they're yeah. talking about, but they also know when they don't yeah. know. And so they work as a member of the team with your primary care doctor or your orthopedic doctor or all of the above, you know, and this is where I think we need to get. Here in Massachusetts, we have a law which has pluses and minuses. One of the interesting bits is that the doctors such as myself who are doing this are prohibited from having any sort of financial relationship with the dispensaries yeah. to whom we send patients. Now, that makes a great deal of sense from the point of view of preventing collusion, right? And so I'm all for it. But one of the unintended consequences is that I, for example, through my practice, have figured out what sorts of products my patients need and what sort of approach to taking care of them they would need. And ironically, I can't turn around and work with the dispensaries to develop appropriate products because that would violate the law. Hmm. So we're having to find some interesting ways to, to bestow that knowledge upon the dispensaries in a way that doesn't transgress either the spirit or the facts of that law. And it's, you know, it's really just kind of about taking my, my knowledge, for example, and putting it in into, into a group where it's sort of at arm's length from me, you know, yeah, get, get scrubbed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I guess I hadn't, I hadn't realized that, that because of the, you know, not non-interest, non-collusion function or structure of the regulation, that it actually creates a kind of a, a knowledge gap or a, a, a knowledge block where people that are developing, you know, the cannabis, the THC, CBD based products that they can't actually work with you directly because of those issues. Exactly. And so they're really, you know, what they do is they end up either kind of winging it mm -hmm. or they hire a consultant usually from out west who brings with them a certain maybe looser model than at least I yeah. would be looking for, you know, there's a, there's a dispensary here that, um, made cannabis barbecue sauce. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the irony is that this is a, a dispensary that is run by a physician. And I, I said to her, what's up with that? And she said, oh, the guys in the kitchen were having some fun. And now I can understand that. But when I asked more specifically from the development people there, they said, look, we're, we're polling our clients and asking them what they want. Well, 
that would make sense if you had a homogeneous group of patients. But when you have a group of folk who are a mixture of patients and, shall we say, recreational users who have a card, then you end up with kind of a mixed message and you end up with developing products that are far more recreationally oriented than medically. And then when I, as the physician, say to my patient, you know, where do you live? Where's your local dispensary? And they say, oh, well, it's near that one. I'm like, well, you can't go there because they don't have the right kind of product for you. Yeah. There is another dispensary. I mean, the one I just mentioned with the barbecue sauce actually has some yeah. very good products. It's just that one yeah. is a weirdo. But then there's another one in town where their idea of products are mac and cheese, spaghetti and meatball and pizza. In fact, they managed to get an article in the New York Times about this weed pizza. Yeah. And then I wrote an op-ed in response saying, you know, weed pizza is not medicine. And of course, nobody wanted to publish that. <laughs> well, so to, to, let's talk about the kind of the the the, the the medical product side, like what, when we talk about medical products, what what forms, what formats, what delivery mechanisms are you are you looking at or, or out there right now or being developed? Um, you know, one of the issues, again, is that because the federal government isn't involved, there's barely a sense of need for safety. And to some degree, that gets dealt with at the state regulatory level. But that's really as far as yeah. it goes. There's really no discussion about, well, two things. One is called bioavailability, right? Which is, you know, if you take this medicine in some form, does it actually even get into your body? And a great example of that would be, you know, topicals and, and patches where in fact, generally speaking, they don't go through your skin at all. Right. Um, so they're a great placebo, but if you actually measure blood levels, you find there aren't any. So there's that issue. And then the, the larger issue, the sort of FDA level issue is efficacy, right? Not only does it get into your body, but does it actually do something, do something better than a placebo would do? Um, and there's almost no discussion of that. There's beginning to be, but that's really where we need to go. I think one of the issues for the industry is that in the absence of needing that level of proof, basically everybody has said, Look, if there's a hole or a surface, we're going to put cannabis there, <laughs> right? So, so we've got cannabis lotions and cannabis patches yeah. and cannabis suppositories yeah. and cannabis vaginal suppositories yeah. and tinctures yeah. and vaporizing and, and, and the list goes on and on. You know, um, again, if you want to go and buy a bottle of cannabis, you know, uh, soda water, uh, you know, for fun, be my guest, but let's not pretend that that's a medical approach. Yeah. So, you know, but the flip side of that is the things that are medical are distinctly less sexy, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. you know, if you're coming at this from a recreational point of view and somebody says, choose between a, a, a weed pizza or a weed capsule, you're probably going to choose the pizza because it just sounds like more fun. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you are an 85-year-old lady with multiple medical issues and you have extreme back pain, you know, and you're unlikely to be interested in that pizza. Yeah. And so really, you know, the question is, how do you enter the medical market as a product manufacturer and do well when right at the moment, everybody's talking about the sexy products, yeah. not the sort of, um, you know, medicinal, accurate, sort of boring, like, you know, no fun at a party kind of stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah. 
So I think that we need and ultimately will differentiate that because, of course, most people are getting older and unfortunately sicker so that there's going to be more and more demand for products that actually work and take care of people and probably less demand after a certain, you know, ramp up for for weed pizzas. Do you think looking at the kind of the market is do you think the way that this is going to play out is that you'll have you have more of a bifurcation of these markets and you'll have a more formal, specific medical application that will have its process, its its sort of dispense, prescribing, dispensing, using model, and then a recreational market, will it, which will have it, that? I think that's probably what will happen. I mean, if things go the way I want them to, that's what will okay. happen. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think that whether the federal government in the near term decides to legalize for recreational purposes and make a unified national policy or continue to sort of permit and otherwise ignore state by state legalization. I don't know. And, you know, I think in the in the broadest sense, I would like to see it become a national policy because I think national policies are a good thing. But in the shorter term, I think we need to get a national policy around medical that provides for that efficacy and the specifics. And basically, we need to have a prescribing system. The number of times per week that a patient of mine goes to the dispensary with a very specific set of recommendations by me only to have somebody at the dispensary sort of twist their arm and get them to do something else and then call me back and say, well, doc, it didn't work or doc, I feel sick or something like that. And I say, well, what do you do? And they say, well, they, you know, the bud tender said, and I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but that's why I told you not to listen to them about this. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that's really interesting, and I only learned this when it got into this field, even after years in sort of medicine in the broader sense, is that I think that most people look at a prescription as a way of the doctor sort of manipulating them, right? The prescription, they think, is there to tell them how to do it. And, you know, to some degree, that's true. That is to say, it's a way of communicating. I want you to take one pill twice a day. But really, I think at the core of the development of the prescription model is really about trying to control the seller, right? Why is it that CVS or Dwayne Reed, when you go in for your blood pressure medicine, doesn't say, wink, wink, hey, would you like a side of Percocet with that? It's because they're not allowed to, not because they wouldn't want to sell you the Percocet, right? So the law and the prescribing system has really evolved to protect the patient against sort of predatory business practices. And again, because we're reinventing everything in the world of cannabis, we we haven't gotten to the point where there's any ability to kind of hold the dispensaries responsible for doing the right thing, medically speaking. We got to get there. So I think, you know, that's going to require the federal government to come back in and say, you know, this is medicine. So we should be doing this right. And we're so I, you know, so we have this this situation. We've got these state by state kind of laws being passed. What what do you what do you think needs to happen or or what do you think the the dominoes are going to be in terms of the, the federal side? Uh, do you have any insight or thoughts on either how you think it should play out from a kind of a, a safety prescribing point of view or how you think it's going to play out based on how you've seen the, the conversations go? One of the things that I think is interesting is that some of the states have gotten bits and pieces of this equation right and and then typically blown other parts of the equation. So, for example, yeah. Massachusetts, like many states, has a list of acceptable conditions 
But what they also did was then they followed the list of acceptable conditions with a line that said basically or any other severe conditions that are determined by your physician. So that takes the doctor out of the role of being sort of this chimpanzee saying, yes, you have something that's on this list and actually applying the the knowledge and experience that we have worked so hard to garner and to be able to take care of patients, uh, you know, with a range of illnesses that sort of meet that level of severity and debilitation. So I think that's a really good thing. On the other hand, Massachusetts set a limit on the cannabis amount at 10 ounces every two months, which is an astounding amount of cannabis. And frankly, I tell all of my... (laughs) I was just doing the calculation in my mind there for a second. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, an ounce is basically a Ziploc sandwich bag stuffed full, right? So 10 of those every two months is is a huge amount. And oddly enough, the system is set up so that I can override the system upwards, but not downwards, which is really kind of a weird legal thing. But, you know, I tell my patients, most of my patients use something closer to an eighth of an ounce in a month. A few of them are a little heavier users. And I basically tell anybody, look, if you get near an ounce a month, we're going to have a conversation about this. It doesn't always mean it's inappropriate use. It just means that that's enough that I think we need to figure out, you know, what's going on there. So Massachusetts, like I said, got some pieces right, some pieces not so right. Florida is another great example where they actually have a medical order, you know, Mm -hmm. so that the physician puts in, I want you to get this product and use it like this. And I think that's a great idea. They've blown some other aspects of it. So what we kind of need at the federal level to get back to your question is we kind of need the greatest hits of. And we're, you know, I I started this organization called the Association of Cannabis Specialists. Mm -hmm. We're now an international organization of doctors and other clinicians who try to take cannabis medicine seriously and want to elevate the standard of care and make sure that we have the tools available to take proper care of patients. And so we're working on developing this kind of a rubric that is this greatest hits uh, and then presenting it to to the federal government in the United States as well as other places. And I think, you know, the government is sort of wending its way around to thinking about yeah. it. I don't think they're there yet. I think that there are, you know, there's sort of a very interesting sort of political set of dynamics. I think, you know, on the left side, which is the side that I tend to associate myself mm-hmm. with, we have people who, whose point of view tends to be, you know, we should be legalizing this because of the social justice aspects of things, but aren't really giving any thought to patient care. And, you know, there are folks out there like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Ro Khanna, who I absolutely support, but in their discussions, there's no discussion of what we should be doing to, to protect and to treat the patients. And, you know, people of color are also patients. Yeah. So we need to kind of think a little bit broad, more broadly about that. On the right, there's this kind of weird tug of war between sort of the pro-business aspect and the pro-states' rights aspect and the law and order aspect. So, you know, the states' rights guy and the and the business guys are sort of going, yeah, let's do cannabis somehow. Not necessarily interested in medicine particularly, but then there's the law and order guys who are out there sort of saying, well, wait a minute, weed is for hippies and we can't have that. 
uh, sort of the, the Nixon argument. Yeah. And, you know, it's evolving. And I think that people on both sides of the aisle are starting to pay attention and take it seriously. And I think that's a great thing. Yeah. I work with a with a group in Washington. And what they keep saying to me is we need to work on the conservative folk, you know, and if we can get those people to pay attention to this, and to understand the validity of it, then we can probably start to move the ball. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, if I was from Boston, I would say it's a wicked problem. Uh, and, that uh, you know, there's, there's lots of different facets. I mean, I do think the more, um, you know, the more conversation, the more kind of getting the right people together to kind of figure out really what are the dynamics and how do we put smart kind of policies and process in place makes sense. Uh, this was great. Uh, we're, we're hitting time here. So uh, I, I think we learned a lot. I think this is uh, really fascinating. If people have more information or want more information about either the Association of Cannabis Specialists or the, um, the Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, what's the best way to contact you, get a hold of you, learn more about some of the work you're doing with those organizations? Sure. So the Association of Cannabis Specialists is cannabis-specialist.org. Um, and you can spell that with specialist with or without a terminal S there. It all works. <laughs> So again, cannabis-specialist.org, Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, which is really an anti-prohibition group, okay. uh, not really focused on medical, but focused on social harms. They're at dfcr.org. And then anybody who's interested in, in getting in touch with me specifically yep. around medical stuff can come through my website, which is inhalemd.com. And then you can actually you know put in an email right there and that lands right on my desk. Awesome. And I will put uh, I'll put all these links uh, and the URLs and the email address in the show notes uh, so people can get a hold of it there. Fantastic. Thank you. Jordan, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.